When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A quick content warning. This podcast includes adult language and delves into difficult themes that include sexual assault. Now on to the show. This was one of my favorite stories from the history of Ain't It Cool News. It was February in the year 2000, perhaps the apex year for the site in terms of its influence and cultural power. Webmaster Harry Knowles, as well as contributors Rebecca Elliott, Eric Vespi, and Drew McWeenie were invited to fly down to San Francisco to host a super advanced preview screening of Ridley Scott's Gladiator. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What this fledgling crew of online movie journalists didn't know at the time is that when Gladiator was finished and released into theaters, it would explode at the global box office and win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And Ain't It Cool News was literally there, promoting the film on the ground floor. But here's the real kicker. Since the Ain't It Cool News team were going to be in Marin County, California, the same place as George Lucas' Skywalker Ranch, Harry Knowles called up Lucasfilm to see if they could get a tour of the facility. And to Harry's surprise, Lucasfilm said sure. This was a huge deal for everyone that was there, not least of all Drew McWeenie, who wrote for the site under the pseudonym Moriarty. Drew can recall the exact moment he fell in love with Star Wars, in part because it was during the celebration for his seventh birthday. Changed me. It was, you know, one of those moments that was like a chemical something that happened where the ship started rolling over my head and I stood up in a theater chair and went, fuck yeah, I'm in, whatever this is from now on. And it just, it, it, it got me. There was, uh, there was a change. So this opportunity to visit Lucasfilm at Skywalker Ranch was massive. Especially when you consider that Drew was not only a fan of movies, but also at the time, an aspiring filmmaker. There was one catch, however. Drew McWeeny had written an early script review of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, more than a year ago, and published it on Ain't It Cool News. Lucasfilm had not authorized anyone outside of the production to read let alone review the script at the time, and because of this, they called Harry Knowles back just after they had set up the tour to let him know that actually, Moriarty was banned from the ranch. Drew recalled this heartbreaking moment during an interview on the Electric Shadow podcast with host Moises Chuyan. We were all in collusion. There was certainly no, no one person did this, everybody else was blame-free. But they were making the point, which was, I signed the article, I wrote the article, I'm banned from the ranch. The decision to single out and ban Drew from the tour was a strange one, especially when you consider that Harry Knowles was the one who owned Ain't It Cool News. Because of this, Harry could have easily stopped Drew McGuini from reviewing the episode one script at any step in the process. And here's the thing. What Harry Knowles did next was actually kind of cool. Harry considered it for about an hour, hour and a half, and called back and said, then none of us can come. Thank you very much, but I, I don't think we're going to roll like that. This was a bold move. A real one-for-all, all-for-one moment. 
It also demonstrated what was great, or at the very least what seemed great, about Ain't It Cool News. I would have been fine. I told Harry, I would be fine if you guys go. I'll do something else in San Francisco. Harry's like, nah, we as a site published it. We as a site should stick together on this. Now let's move on to one of my least favorite stories from the history of Ain't It Cool News. It was September in the year 2006. There was a German filmmaker named Uwe Boll. So yes, Uwe Boll, and uh, basically my message is, fuck yourself. The director of such critically panned films as Alone in the Dark and House of the Dead, Uwe was prepping the release of his upcoming film Postal and needed an angle to promote the film. So he decided that the best way to do this was to go to Vancouver, Canada to host a boxing match against the movie critics who had been bashing his films online for years. So I wrote like, okay, if you come up here and uh, you fight me, then uh, I will kick the shit out of you. <laughs> In total, there were five internet critics who would fight Uwe Boll as part of this promotion. He has no eye for detail. Like I said, I haven't really seen a full movie, but I don't really think that I need to have even seen a full movie to judge it. That's an archive video clip of Jeff Schneider, aka Mira Jeff, who entered the fight on behalf of Ain't It Cool News. Representing Ain't It Cool News, Snyder believed, as we all did at the time, that the fights were going to be part of a publicity stunt. Nothing serious. A few jabs here and there, as well as the opportunity to write a humorous article for the site. I had never boxed before, never been in a ring. I spent the entire day leading up to the fight smoking weed in my hotel room. But what Jeff and the rest of these critics didn't know is that Uva Bull was in fact taking these fights very seriously. Not only that, Bull had every intention of taking each and every one of these soft, internet-fed bodies and beating the shit out of them in front of a live audience. This included Jeff Schneider. I mean, I was like, holy shit, that's what it's like to get hit in the face, huh? Schneider got his ass kicked representing his website. And yet, after the beatdown on Schneider commenced, no one from Manic Cool News was there to stand in his corner, to make sure he was okay, or to even give him a ride to the hospital or his hotel room. Unpaid and uninsured by Ain't It Cool News for this stunt, Schneider was a man alone. No one was there, again, no one was there to take my, my headgear off, so I'm feeling super claustrophobic. No one is there to take my gloves off. I felt like that was a lot harder than I thought. And then no one was there to like unwrap my hand. In this special two-part episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we will talk about the era that would signal the beginning of the end for this once fearsome, if not revered movie news website. We will dive into the attack of the clones controversy, as well as the attack of actual clones that happened in real life. Lastly, we will discuss Harry Knowles' failed aspirations to create media outside of his own website. All of this and more. So let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 6, The Anti-Social Network, Part 1. It's March 2011 at South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. A festival devoted to music, film, and interactive media, typically in that order, South by Southwest, or South by, had no less than two major surprises that would happen that year. The biggest surprise, which you're listening to right now, happened when Jack White, formerly of the White Stripes, played a solo show in a parking lot on Wednesday, March 16th. 
Swarmed by festival attendees, Jack White only performed two songs at that show, one of them being Dead Leaves on the Dirty Ground, which we are playing right now. The other song Jack White performed was a cover of the Buddy Holly song, Not Fade Away. I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. This was appropriate since Buddy was a Texas native. The second major surprise that was slated for South by that year was part of the celebration for the legacy of another Texas native. It was a secret screening in honor of the 15th anniversary of Ain't It Cool News, a website founded by Harry J. Knowles in 1996. As far as the lifespan for most websites is concerned, 15 years is an exceptional amount of time. This is especially true when you consider that Ain't It Cool News was essentially a crudely produced movie blog that had not been seriously updated or redesigned since the late 90s. By this time, a lot of the movie websites and blogs that made a huge splash in the late 90s and early 2000s had been sold or shuttered completely. That said, Ain't It Cool News was still going, if not running strong, and it was still owned by the person who created it. The festivities would culminate in a secret movie screening on the evening of Monday, March 14th, hosted at the historic Paramount Theater in downtown Austin. The rumor was that Harry managed to secure a premiere screening for a myriad of different films. And perhaps the most dominant rumor was that Harry was going to premiere the brand new Marvel film, Captain America, The First Avenger. But before that, Harry, along with a handful of contributors, were on stage at the Austin Convention Center for a live panel discussion for the website's anniversary. The room was, it's a, it was one of the bigger panel rooms. It was halfway full. Uh, There's still a lot of people interested in Ain't It Cool at the time. You look back on it now with different eyes. At the time, I'm still like just enamored of the site, but looking back on it now, it's a huge path the back of yourself session. That's Alan Cerny. Alan used to write for Ain't It Cool News under the pseudonym Nordling. He wasn't one of the site's writers who got to participate in the panel. That honor was reserved for a handful of legacy contributors that included Eric Vespi, a.k.a. Quint, Steve Procopi, a.k.a. Capone, Kevin Beagle, a.k.a. Aguirre, and even Harry's dad, Jay Knowles, a.k.a. Father Geek. And there at the center of it all was the webmaster and creator of Ain't It Cool News, Harry Knowles, doing something he did quite often by this time in his life, holding court. Knowles recalled the great incident that launched it all, this, of course, was the story about a hand truck full of movie memorabilia that ran over Harry's back, leaving him wheelchair-bound for most of his adult life. I was terrified that I would never leave an impact on the world. I wanted to do something for my bedroom that I could get paid for. And I knew it wasn't going to be sex. According to English journalist Catherine Short, Harry's joke got a huge laugh from the crowd. A reporter from the Guardian newspaper, like Alan Cerny, Catherine was there to cover South by Southwest as well as this panel with Ain't It Cool News. But unlike Alan, the legacy of both Harry Knowles and this website did not make Catherine feel like patting anyone on the back. A traditional journalist awash in a sea of internet movie geeks, bloggers, and the like, she was concerned and even dismayed. It was a, an environment absolutely ruled by those sort of people, and, and, it was, and that was a bit of a shock to the system for somebody like me uh, to realize just what an outlier you were. Catherine was caught off guard not only by the fact that she and her traditional media colleagues were completely outnumbered by the bloggers and online writers, she was also astonished by the glaring disparity in accommodations for these groups. According to Shord, the press suite for traditional journalists provided sparse amenities, including coffee and a sporadic cheese platter. She goes on to complain, perhaps half-jokingly, that a blogger lounge reserved for online writers provided a free bar, popcorn, hot snacks, and more. But more than being outnumbered or left to make do with inferior snacks, 
Catherine Shord was most uneasy with the feeling that film criticism seemed like it had been fully replaced by film enthusiasm. In other words, the internet movie geeks were now in charge of cinema culture. And the genre movies these so-called film enthusiasts championed, which Shord referred to as geek movies, all but dominated the scene. I'm going to have an actor read this next part, but describing what she saw that day, Catherine didn't mince words. Geek movies rule the roost, partly because their consumers are so omnipresent. The thick-set, dense-bearded, logo-t-shirted, hooting, whooping, white, apparently heterosexual 30-somethings with fingers locked to keypad. Catherine seemed to be particularly put off by the sounds these writers made, clacking away on their laptops, keyboards, and smartphones in unison. And so, yeah, I don't mean to imply that it was dumb, because it, it was not that at all. It was just amazingly striking how uniform it was. For Catherine, the central nervous system of this uniform, hive mind of online writers or so-called enthusiasts, was internet movie geek god or proto-influencer Harry Knowles. And she was right. At the time, Harry Knowles was a major figurehead in the so-called film enthusiasm movement. And according to Alan Cerny, by 2011, film enthusiasm was essentially the only editorial mandate that Harry had for Ain't It Cool News. The only really editorial thing that Harry ever wrote, ever told me about movie reviews is that, you know, you write from a place of joy. Not every movie is going to give you that. And if I have a negative review about something, I'm going to explain why. And he doesn't have a problem with that. But, you know, don't don't trash the filmmakers in your negative review. You know, you're 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 about the movie, not the filmmakers or the personalities. When you sit down to that movie in the darkened theater, you're at 100 percent. It goes down from 100, not up from zero. Eric Vespi, a.k.a. Quint, who started working for Anik Quinoos when he was a kid in high school and who was largely the main person running the website by 2011, concurs with a statement. We brought everybody on with the understanding that Ain't It Cool's bent was always positive. Um, not that we would sugarcoat something that was shitty, but we never wanted to be snarky. This stance marks a surprising change for the culture of Ain't It Cool News that occurred during the 2000s. After all, Ain't It Cool News was a website that originally made a reputation for itself off of negative reviews of new and unreleased films. This segue into film enthusiasm was an interesting shift for a website that hijacked film culture, in large part for running an article wherein one of its writers publicly wished death on director Joel Schumacher. This death threat, which I would say goes beyond snark, happened back when Ain't It Cool News review bombed the Warner Brothers film Batman and Robin in 1997, which we covered in the second episode of this program. Speaking of Joel Schumacher, perhaps nothing exemplifies the changes within Ain't It Cool News during this time better than the relationship that that filmmaker had with Harry Knowles. In the summer of 1997, the director of such movies as Car Wash and The Lost Boys publicly considered Knowles to be a bitter enemy, a hateful, basement-dwelling gargoyle who ruined his movie Batman and Robin. But this all changed, according to Harry Knowles. After the dust had settled on his major box office disaster, Joel Schumacher gave Harry Knowles a phone call. It was evident that he wasn't very happy coming off of the Batman experience. People were not being friendly. Can't really think of too many times in history where a director was getting death threats from his audience, but he was very honest that he had lost his way on the film. He said, I never hated you, Harry, even when, when you were being brutally honest, because if I hated everyone who didn't like one of my movies, I wouldn't have any friends left. He even offered me a cameo in his movie 8mm, being spanked by a dominatrix. But the scheduling didn't work out probably just as well. 
Harry says the two of them remained friends after that, and that they would often exchange phone calls. This was something that usually occurred during the times when Schumacher was about to release a new film. Later on, Joel Schumacher would even reach out to Harry Knowles to host a screening of the director's Vietnam War film Tigerland in Austin. Welcome to Tigerland! This will be your final week of training before you are shipped overseas. Maybe some of you have heard that we've lost this war. Harry adds that it was after the screening that Joel Schumacher invited both him and his father to hang out with the director in the lobby of a nearby hotel. We had a three to four hour talk where I got to understand Joel Schumacher. He wanted me to see him and honestly, I was 100% on board. In person, I found Joel to be an incredibly soft-spoken gay man that loved to discuss his gay life, which he said I could never understand. It was then, according to Harry, that Joel shared the real details of his life, the kinds of things we don't always get to read about in interviews. Joel talked about what it was like growing up openly gay during a time in America when that was an especially dangerous thing to do. Harry said that Joel was so afraid for his life that he dropped out of high school and ran away from home. It's this particular detail that makes me wonder if Harry had taken the time to truly understand the full context and backstory of this human being, would he have been so comfortable, so cavalier in publishing this death threat online? He told me that in my Batman and Robin review, when I compared bad movie making to heroin addiction, that hit him square in the face because he felt it was true. You surround yourself with people that feed your own delusions, allowing you to fall deeper and deeper in denial. What's interesting about this story that Joel Schumacher allegedly shared with Harry is that here was an older man, an artist who was beyond the best moments of his career. And he was sharing an important lesson he had learned from a major mistake in his life that many young creatives and producers need to hear. It was an important lesson about an artist and creative professional who clearly lost his way by pursuing too many objectives beyond his main purpose. The details he shared about the madness in making Batman and Robin, how studio execs pushed toy execs into the process of costume and vehicle designs they thought kids would love, but were terrible on screen. He took complete responsibility, but at the same time, let me know what a five ring circus it was. Everyone had their own crews around them. He'd give directions to assistants that would then communicate or not to the actors that he wanted. And the film was just an out of control party. In hindsight, this was a message that Harry needed to internalize more than anything else. And yet the true meaning and value of this warning from an older creative to a younger one had clearly escaped Harry Knowles. Harry might have been the man who was publicly blamed in Entertainment Weekly for killing the movie Batman and Robin, but in terms of cultural relevance or commercial or creative success, he would ultimately fare no better. There are a lot of people today who think that Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News were taken down by multiple accusations of sexual misconduct in 2017. But this was always part of the truth. The full truth is that the site was well into its death spiral long before that happened. To understand how Ain't It Cool News wound up there, one need only look at an event that occurred at South by Southwest Festival as a catalyst specifically one that took place in the year 2002. That was a fateful year for both Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. They were massively successful, pulling in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users from around the world per month. Additionally, the market had corrected itself after the burst of the dot-com bubble, so even ad revenues were high. 
and after closely helping to launch Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films into massive box office successes, major filmmakers and studio execs were all lining up to kiss Harry's ass. For the very few online news startups that achieved this level of momentum, this was a time to invest in creating organizational structures within your business, as well as editorial policies designed to maintain, if not continue, this growth. Unfortunately, neither of these things happened. I was more trying to focus on the business and, and really pounding my head against the wall that was Harry. That's Paul Alvarado Dykstra, who once managed the business side of Anit News as the chief operating officer. At one point in time, he was also a legal co-owner for the site. Just started from being a casual acquaintance to just being friendly to then being kind of an informal advisor. Then when it came, it kind of became obvious that there was an opportunity here to build it as a business. That, that got me very interested because I saw the potential. That potential included opportunities to expand the Ain't It Cool News brand beyond the internet. A crazy idea when you think about it now, especially since the internet has basically now become everything. But at the time, Harry Knowles was pursuing deals that would include a TV series with Comedy Central, as well as a publishing deal with Warner Books. The latter resulted in the publication of the book titled Ain't It Cool, a 318-page biography-slash-manifesto of internet movie geek culture. Co-written with no less than two writers, investigative journalists Paul Cullum and Mark Ebner, and touting a forward by none other than director Quentin Tarantino himself, the book was released in March of 2002. With two different writers telling a first-hand account of someone who is basically a writer by trade, many people believe the book is nothing more than pure fabrication. This is a sentiment I understand, and in some cases even agree with. At the same time, many so-called celebrity biographies are co-written or sometimes written entirely by ghostwriters, whose names never appear on the cover. So I give Ain't It Cool, the book, credit for at least being transparent in this regard, and ensuring that all of its writers were properly credited, and compensated. These are two facts you cannot say for Ain't It Cool News, the website. Co-writer Paul Cullum states that Warner Books paid them $125,000 to write the book. Cullum adds that when he was brought on to the project, Harry wanted them to write more than just an autobiography. He wanted, to, he wanted it to be something that could express the collective you know, joy and camaraderie of film. And then he wanted to just kind of consolidate his thoughts about, you know, what makes a film, what makes, you know, why is it important? We're doing stuff that's pissing off the studios, but it's not to piss off the studios. It's to, it's for the studio's benefit. The back of the book even touts that it will be available in audio form via Warner Audiobooks, a promise the publisher never made good on. This was due in large part to the fact that in terms of hardcover book sales, Ain't It Cool would largely be a commercial failure. And maybe it's just a case of sour grapes but Paul Cullum suspects the book's failure might have been Warner Books' intention all along. I guess I'll say this, I hope. Don't get me sued, but uh, Batman and Robin is a Warner Brothers film. The book is a Warner Brothers book, but I think Warner's bought it to take it away from anybody else, and then I think they just didn't want it to succeed. I think they wanted to break him, because he cost them what, 10 million bucks on opening day of, opening week of Batman and Robin, you know? I mean, he took real money out of their pockets. To bolster Cullum's theory, Harry Knowles would later claim that Warner Books would not even cover his airfare so he could promote his book on the David Letterman show. And I want to be clear about one thing, folks. Books fail for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons the book Ain't It Cool might have failed is due to the fact that if fans of Harry Knowles' website wanted to read about his thoughts on filmmaking or his life, 
he was already giving a lot of that away for free on the internet. So if Cullum's theory sounds like a wild and unfounded conspiracy, I understand. But Cullum doubles down, stating that Entertainment Weekly, a magazine that was published by Warner, worked overtime to spike its negative review of Harry's book down the throats of the magazine's readers. Uh, in Entertainment Weekly, for three weeks running, tune in this day, we're gonna review the new Harry Knowles book. They'd like banner marqueed it. And then when it came out, they gave the book a D minus, the lowest grade that Entertainment Weekly has ever bestowed on a book. And I was beside myself. And I remember I got on the phone with Harry Call that day and said, what, did you see the reviews? What do you think? And I said, I'm just, I, I, we failed so miserably. And he, and he was, he's like, you know, 20 years younger than me. And he was saying, what, whatever he is, 15 years younger than me. He says, snap out of it. What's the matter with you? What do we care what they think? Come on, we're in the, we're in Entertainment Weekly. This is great. Harry Knowles didn't let the bad reviews get him down, which is good because there were a lot of them. Perhaps Harry managed to stay positive due in part to two different reasons. The first reason was that Harry would at least get to host a promotional signing event for the book at South by Southwest, which took place the same month that the book was released. This meant that Harry Knowles would get to be presented yet again as the hometown hero who made good. Rebecca Elliott was at this signing event. She even remembers the strange encounter she had with low-budget film producer Lloyd Kaufman, the creator of Troma Films and The Toxic Avenger. The Toxic Avenger, the first superhero born out of nuclear waste. Holy shit! Lloyd Kaufman was at South by Southwest for some reason of Troma, and he was hanging out with us and with Harry and he asked me to sign his Ain't It Cool book and I was like why am I signing something for Lloyd Kaufman it was so just crazy and so I did um, and I don't even think I mentioned in the book. Rebecca Elliott is right Harry gave shout outs on his book to many of the men who wrote for Ain't It Cool News. This includes Rebecca's own husband Jed Strom who wrote for the site under the pseudonym Tom Jode. But Harry completely failed to mention any of his women contributors, Rebecca specifically, who was easily one of the most prolific writers for the site. Hashtag justice for Rebecca. He, miss, he lists uh, Jed, Tom Jode, who's my partner in crime, but he failed, failed miserably. To mention Annette. Yeah. Yeah. WTF. I was... <laughs> I was probably not writing that much i don't know neither was jed whatever <laughs> <laughs> well you know he mentions like joe hallenbeck and he wasn't really writing that much at the time he was uh it busy was... he was busy. yeah he was busy <laughs> dealing with his issues yep i remember his issues well that was a big thing another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The other reason that perhaps Harry Knowles didn't let the bad reviews of his book get him down is the fact that at that very South by Southwest, the webmaster would land what would be his last great breaking story that he would ever write for Ain't It Cool News. 
but to accomplish this, at least one person had to break the law. As we mentioned during the cold opening of this episode, Drew McWheeney had been banned from Skywalker Ranch for running an authorized review of the script for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Harry must have been undeterred by this fact, because with the next installment of George Lucas's prequel trilogy, Harry took it to the next level. Rather than simply publish an unauthorized review for the script of Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones, Harry managed to write an early, unauthorized review of the whole damn movie. It was during his book signing event at South by Southwest in 2002 that Harry secured an exclusive premiere screening of the Star Wars film, which was slated for release that following summer. And by exclusive premiere screening, what I mean is that someone who worked for Lucasfilm stole a digital copy of the film from his employer. According to Harry, this Lucasfilm employee then approached the webmaster at his book signing event and handed him a note that simply mentioned both the name of a hotel and a room number. And it was in that hotel room where the employee then screened the largely unfinished Star Wars prequel in its entirety for an audience that consisted of no one besides Harry Knowles. And if all of this sounds very sketchy, that's because it was. Harry Knowles acknowledges this himself. I was scared and thrilled to be watching episode two. The entire time I was in that hotel room, I was convinced that agents of Lucasfilm were going to knock down the doors and I knew I was being set up for a fall. I mean, it isn't possible to see Star Wars early. I know that, but there I was watching it, listening to the sounds of drunk South by Southwest festival revelers falling into the door outside. It's important to note here that if Harry had any intentions of protecting the identity of the Lucasfilm employee, he was sharing way too many details. He's doing this clearly to gloat about his access. At the same time, Harry is also writing what was essentially a breadcrumb trail that would result in at least one person, who may or may not have been involved with this illegal screening, getting in a lot of trouble. After this unauthorized, completely illegal hotel room screening of episode 2, Harry ran his review which he released on his website on March 17, 2002. This was a day shy of two months before the U.S. release date for the film. Thanks to a super-secret screening last week, one internet reporter knows everything about episode two. When I saw that I was actually watching film, one, I was shocked because of the size of the scoop that it would have been. And two, I was thrilled to see that it was actually a really wonderful film. That's an archive clip of the actual Harry Knowles sharing his review of Star Wars Episode Two on Tech Live. Tech Live was a TV news program that aired on the now-defunct Tech TV cable network, formerly known as ZDTV. This was just some of the national media coverage that Harry received for his completely unauthorized review of the film. As you can hear, the early word on Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones from Harry was good. He even went so far as to praise Jar Jar Binks. There's just a, a brief no, no, glimmer of Jar Jar, and actually Jar Jar's character in the film serves a very strong purpose for this story, as opposed to the first one when he was just sort of around in every scene, like where's Walda? Overall, Noel says, believe the hype about this chapter of the Star Wars saga. Despite the fact that Harry Noel's review of the film was positive, far more positive than Attack of the Clones ever deserved, Lucasfilm was less than thrilled to learn about this leak. And that's putting it mildly. According to Drew McWheeney, Lucasfilm actually struck back at the leak with the unrelenting fury one might expect from the Empire. Lucasfilm started looking for how that copy got out of their company. I'm not going to say that Harry cost that person their job. I'm going to say that that person no longer has any relationship with Lucasfilm and that it was not a voluntary choice. 
News coverage centering on Lucasfilm's pursuit of the man who allegedly leaked this unfinished work print of Attack of the Clones actually netted more coverage than the Webmaster's review. And since Harry was more than happy to dish on the circumstances surrounding this illicit screening of the film, someone was going down for this. As a result of their massive, rather costly investigation, Lucasfilm rooted out a production assistant who worked for the production company by the name of Shea O'Brien Foley. Several news outlets ranging from Entertainment Weekly to the BBC reported that Foley was allegedly the leaker who had stolen the film and shared it with Harry Knowles. The Marin Independent Journal also reported that at the time of Foley's arrest, police conducted searches of both his home as well as his mother's home. It was during these searches that they discovered 18 CD-ROMs containing sound effects by Lucasfilm, 2,000 unauthorized digital images, and hundreds of video clips that Foley had allegedly stolen from Lucasfilm's server. They also discovered 113 actual storyboard sketches that featured handwritten notes by George Lucas himself. Facing a maximum sentence of more than seven years in prison, Shea O'Brien Foley would plead guilty to two felony counts of grand theft and three felony counts of legally accessing a computer system to wrongfully retrieve data. At Foley's trial, Marin County Superior Court Judge Verna Adams expressed concern for what she described as Foley's lack of remorse and accountability for his crimes. During Foley's pre-sentencing hearing, Deputy Probation Officer Bronnie Kressler also delivered this rather clutch quote. The defendant found the equivalent, for an obsessed Star Wars fan, of the Holy Grail. But rather than sip from it, he guzzled. After this amazing, pithy quote worthy of a comic book, the judge sentenced Foley to one year in jail. I should note that all attempts to reach Foley were unsuccessful. Also, throughout Foley's trial, Harry Knowles would deny that Foley was the person who hosted the illegal screening of Star Wars Episode II with him. This is something he continues to do to this very day. And yet, whether or not Foley was the person who leaked the film to Harry Knowles, here is one thing that is true. It really didn't matter to Lucasfilm who shared the film with Harry Knowles. The movie studio accomplished exactly what they set out to do. They made an example. After that, everyone who worked with Lucasfilm on future productions knew that the price they could pay for unauthorized leaks to movie news sites like Ain't It Cool News could be both swift and dire. According to Drew McWeenie, Harry Knowles' greatest sin in the fallout surrounding Episode 2 was that the webmaster failed to protect a source. I don't think Harry cared if he got people burned. I don't think Harry cared if people paid for his transgressions. I can say that I know I've never gotten a source fired and I've never ID'd a source. I cannot say that about Harry. I think many of Harry's sources got fired. This incident is part of the reason Harry Knowles would never write as big of a breaking story for his site ever again. According to Eric Vespi, during the early days of Ain't It Cool, there was a time when industry professionals craved being the anonymous sources who leaked information with Ain't It Cool News. In a very weird way, I think that a huge portion of the site's success stems from that because that became a, a thing, a badge of honor. People wanted to be given a, a, a fake name on Ain't It Cool News. Like they wanted to be a source. And so they, it became exciting. It was a cool, hip thing to do. But this most likely changed after Harry Knowles was perceived to have caused an industry professional not only to be fired, but prosecuted in the court of law in a major public way. Simply put, for industry professionals who shared these stories with Harry, the juice was probably no longer worth the jail time. But that wasn't the only reason Harry stopped breaking major news stories. According to former Ain't It Cool News writer C. Robert Cargill, as the site progressed into the early to mid-2000s, 
its creator was becoming more and more of a non-presence. Harry started losing interest in being Harry. Uh, in he didn't want to write negative reviews anymore, and he was taking less and less um, uh, space on the site. So he was kind of waning away. The site began to wane away as well. This was due in part to an attack of actual clones, as in other movie news websites. Some of these websites were created by aspiring entrepreneurs and ambitious writers who saw what Ain't It Cool News had achieved with minimal web design skills and said, hey, I could do that too. Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, they were, you know, they were scoop guys, basically. They, they would bring a lot of scoops news, but it was more like uh, early scripts and shit, right? So we're like, okay, well, we'll bring some news too, because it makes sense. I want to know what's going on in the movie world. That's Burj Garbedian, the child of Armenian refugees, Burj immigrated to Canada from Holland when he was just a kid. Early on, he realized that a lot of movies he loved as a young adult were getting bashed by traditional, i.e. white, film critics. I found at some point that a lot of the reviewers that I was reading and watching were 50-year-old men, 50, 60-year-old white guys. And that was pretty much it back in those days. So um, not that I have anything against white guys, but uh, it, just <laughs> it just seemed like um, I don't want to say pretentious, but they, you know, they didn't like they didn't like fun movies. You know, I, I kind of I grew up just enjoying different kind of movies, but I like fun movies too. Another website that managed to clone the editorial style and business model of Ain't It Cool News was created by two of its former writers, Jeremy Smith, aka Mr. Beaks, along with his friend and fellow Los Angeles resident Steve Weintraub, aka Frosty Skywalker. In 2005, Jeremy Smith had had enough of writing articles for Ain't It Cool News without getting paid for his work. He says that his colleague felt disrespected by the site too. The last straw for Steve, according to Jeremy, was when Steve didn't get reinvited to Butt Namathon, or BNAT, Harry's annual 24-hour film festival slash airsets means of compensation for all of his unpaid writers. He'd gone to Butt Namathon one year, and then the next year he, uh, he was not uh, approved to attend Butt Namathon. He was furious. He was like, all the stuff I do for the site. When asked about that last detail, Steve Weintraub says the process behind his choice to start a movie news website wasn't entirely motivated by such a simple grievance. I remember being at Drew Drew's apartment in Hollywood, and I remember mentioning, and I don't remember what year it was, but it must have been the early 2000s, obviously. And I, I'm, I think I pitched him on ideas on how Ain't It Cool could get better from video to, you know, just like, I just pitched some ideas and then, you know, nothing happened with it. And then I was talking to friends and, you know, telling them my ideas and all of them were like, you should just start your own website. With financial backing from a movie producer by the name of Warren Zide, producer of such films as the American Pie and Final Destination series, Steve pitched Jeremy on the idea of building a new website. He's like, man, he's like, if we do this thing, we're going to be, we can be so much bigger than Ain't It Cool. They're not, you know, they're not taking it seriously. And he was like, and you'll take it seriously. I'm going to take it seriously. And we're going to bury Ain't It Cool. And I was like, yeah, I was like, all right, all right. You know, pump the brakes here, guy. But I was like, you know, let me meet with Warren. And so I met with Warren and Warren was a great talker. And he was like, you know, and, and he was like, look, there's not going to be a lot of money early on, but if you guys make this work, you know, we're all going to be, he, he would always say, we're going to be bigger than U.S. Steel, you know, line from Godfather Part Two. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. Steve and Jeremy, along with their financial backer Warren Side, launched their website that year. Lacking computer skills or web design savvy, 
Jeremy says they faced many challenges, not the least of which was what to name their website in the first place. Kept running through names and I came up with the idea of Collider. And, and the funny, and the great thing is that uh, like Steve and Warren were like, what's Collider? Because I'd written it down. I was like, no, 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 Collider. Like Collider, like a super collider, like a, you know, and I'm trying to explain to them physics and I'm just like, eh, never mind. I was like, you know what? It's a really good name. Aside from movie reviews, the second wave of internet movie news sites like Collider and its predecessor Joe Blow presented an astounding amount of articles on a daily basis. To achieve this, these news sites didn't need a staff of reporters to hit the digital pavement in order to dig up breaking exclusives. They let the writers of other websites like Ain't It Cool News, Corona Coming Attractions, and Dark Horizons, and even newcomers like the once venerable Latino Review do that for them. Then these newer sites would take the content produced by their older colleagues, share the most interesting or eye-catching tidbits, sandwich it in between a little commentary at the top and the bottom of their posts, and voila! For readers like myself, this daily collection of other websites' news stories and content to one convenient, easy-to-navigate website was great. To former writers of Ain't It Cool News like C. Robert Cargill, who referred to the second wave of movie news websites as aggregators, Joe Blow, Collider, and other websites like them felt like a meteorite hurling towards his world. We had entered an era where um, play journalism really kind of took over. Um, it's what I call it. There's no real name for it, but it's play journalism. It's where you'd have people go in and take somebody's news story that they'd researched, that they'd you know verified, and they'd copy and paste it into their blog. And then they would add like 50 to 100 words going, oh, so Christian Bale's Batman. Oh, well, I loved him in this last movie and I'm really excited about his next movie. So I guess this is a cool choice. There, I've added content uh, and then posted on the site and are drawing the reads away from the people who did the work. And I was like, and I went around to the heads of a bunch of the sites um, and said, we can't be doing this. We have to, if we don't support each other and drive traffic to the people who are doing the work, this will collapse. Cargill had a point. With the rise of aggregators, other websites could engage readers and from a business standpoint, charge ad rates to sponsors for the same news and information minus all the reporting and legwork. Once this became the norm, could websites like Ain't It Cool News manage anything resembling a sustainable business model? Cargill says the colleagues at his and other movie news websites ignored his warnings, even as major corporations began to jump into the movie news aggregation game. And then I saw AOL was bought up Cinematical and MTV bought up Film.com and all these big conglomerates were owning websites. And I'm like, that plus play, play journalism leads to a point where it doesn't matter who breaks the news. And then you're, everybody's fighting over the same scraps of traffic and there's not enough money to support a middle class, a, 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 a class of middle class white guys writing movie reviews. Like that just can't happen. This was probably the worst moment in the history of Ain't It Cool News for Harry Knowles to take a step back from his website. At the same time, at least for a short while, Drew McWeeny was ready to step up, claiming the role of West Coast editor for Ain't It Cool News. Drew's work at Ain't It Cool News focused not so much on breaking news, but on aiding in the struggle to help the films that would eventually become breaking news. Much like he did with Brad Bird's The Iron Giant, Drew's film advocacy by way of editorials would take films in various states of production and try to help them along on their way to the big screen. Easily one of the best examples of this was an unproduced comedy screenplay by an SNL writer who was trying to break into movies. 
We got it now. It's all right. Little ham and eggs coming at you. Hold on, people. Hope you got your griddles. That script was for a Will Ferrell vehicle called Anchorman. And that writer and aspiring director was named Adam McKay. Anchorman was in turnaround. Anchorman was done at DreamWorks. They weren't going to make it. They had gone as far as they were going to go with it. I read the script. I reviewed the script. That script review caused a bidding war. DreamWorks had to buy the film back from themselves. And then after they did that, they had no choice but to make the film because they had spent enough money at that point that they were in. They just had to do it. An absurd satire of our nation's crumbling news infrastructure in ways we didn't really even see at the time, Anchorman was only a modest box office hit upon its release. However, the film would go on to be one of the most popular and most quoted comedies of its decade. Milk was a bad choice. After I wrote that script review, a friend of mine was a location manager on the movie and said, hey, we're shooting a scene today. It's the, the scene where all the uh, news crews are going to rumble. Do you want to come down? You can't tell anybody it's you because they'll flip out if you see who's doing cameos, but you got to come down and see. I was like, cool. Let's dance, dickweed. You want to dance, Ronnie? I want a polka. So I showed up on the set and I was just hanging out with my buddy. And while I'm talking with him, I didn't realize Dave Koechner was in the movie. And I, I'm standing on the set, and I hear, Drew? Drew McQueenie? From across, and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, God. What was A quick editor's note, Drew McQueenie's roommate at the time all of this went down was also the brother-in-law of Anchorman co-star David Koechner. And Dave Koechner comes over, and I'm like, Dave, don't say anything, man. I'm not here. Don't say my name, man. Dave vanishes, and like 10 minutes later, Shauna Robertson, the producer of the film, comes walking over and is like, are you Drew McQueenie? It's like, oh, Christ. And they pulled me over, and they said thank you. And it was a moment where they acknowledged, dude, this wasn't going to happen. We were done. So thank you so much. That is a real case where we had an influence and got something, got them the, the leg room to then make their movie. I reached out to Adam McKay to verify these details. Via email, he says the biggest reason Anchorman got made is because Will Ferrell's 2003 film Old School was a hit. But to this day, McKay says he appreciates that Drew and Ain't It Cool News beat the drum for his film, so to speak, when no one else would. I've said before that Drew McQueenie is one of the greatest film writers in the history of the internet, and I'll say that again here. Drew is a talented writer who loves movies. Loves them. This is something you could say about a lot of the best critics on the internet. But what separates Drew from many of his online contemporaries is that as a working screenwriter, his writing on film was powered by a natural understanding of what makes both stories and characters work. In addition to that, as a seasoned industry professional, Drew also infused his writing with an intimate knowledge of how movies got made and at times unmade. Because of this, he was often quick to note where he suspected a filmmaker's true intentions were vetoed by an overzealous producer or executives. Steve Prokopi echoes this statement. When he worked for us, he was the perfect combination of like just a fan and an insider to a certain degree. And I don't mean insider as in like someone who had influence and power, but he knew how things worked in, in, in Hollywood. He probably more than anybody, he 
just from a knowing people uh really like the friendships he had cultivated over the years in hollywood uh, but then also just knowing how things worked and how because he, as a, his work as a screenwriter he got to see a lot of the good and mostly bad stuff that could happen in hollywood um so I, I, I like that combination of just fantastic writing and, uh, and knowledge. If you read him consistently, you definitely knew how the sausage was made. So, When Drew believed in a filmmaker or a project, he would often leverage the influence and clout of Ain't It Cool News to help them realize their creative vision. But not all of Drew's advocacy of unfinished or unreleased movies was positive. There were times when he used his platform at Ain't Cool News to tear films and their filmmakers down. And in doing so, he would often reveal a side of his personality that was angry and at times even vindictive. Here's Paul Alvarado Dykstra. Uh, my my general impression of Drew was that he's somebody who was always angry. And to a certain degree, I think that probably a lot of that anger was justified. I think a lot of it was uh, irresponsibly fueled. I I kind of get the sense that Drew maybe maybe has some anger management issues on top of it that maybe didn't help. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of people express their displeasure with my praise of Drew's work as an early online film critic. After direct conversations with many of these people, it's often clear that the root of their displeasure stems from the fact that at some point during their interactions with and around Ain't It Cool News, Drew was mean and in some cases downright hateful. And I've seen this happen myself. A friend of mine, film critic Rene Rodriguez, once responded to a post Drew made on social media. Rene made what very much seemed like an innocuous statement, only for Drew to take deep offense and strike back with a bitter, hateful response. As far as Drew's work at Ain't It Cool News is concerned, there was probably no one who was the recipient of Drew's hatred and anger more than film executive Tom Rothman. Currently, Rothman is the chairman of Sony Pictures the studio that now leads the post-pandemic box office with their comic book movie Spider-Man No Way Home and Venom 2 Let There Be Carnage. But before that, during the time when Tom Rothman was head of 20th Century Fox, Jeremy Smith says that many online journalists, including himself, felt that Rothman was doing a poor job of respecting talent, as well as both the Marvel X-Men and Fantastic Four movie franchises. So Rothman he had he had a reputation for uh, interfering in in movies uh, he didn't really like superheroes he had a notorious hatred of large robots uh, he didn't like uh, big robots uh, and so that was kind of difficult when they wanted to bring galactus into um, the fantastic four movies and that's why he was a cloud <laughs> essentially it was during pre-production on x-men 3 the last stand that drew mcweeney posted an incendiary Scorched Earth editorial directed at the executive in 2005. Concerned with the rumors of behind-the-scenes issues on X-Men 3, Drew kicks off this lengthy word tsunami by declaring that Tom Rothman was a villain. Drew then bashed Rothman for claiming he was a friend to geeks and genre writers during a speech he gave at the Saturn Awards, which is hosted annually by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Listening to him talk about what a friend he is to genre filmmakers was akin to bring out a show foundation dinner and the guest of honor was Joseph Goebbels. One thing I should probably note for context is that during this time while Drew McGuinney worked for Ain't It Cool News, he was also trying to break into the entertainment business as a screenwriter. In fact, he had at least three major deals writing screenplays for upcoming movies. 
This included an unproduced sequel to Mortal Kombat 2 Annihilation, as well as a remake of the 1975 Peter Fonda thriller Race with the Devil. When you race with the devil, you'd better run for your life. According to Jeremy Smith, another film Drew was slated to write was an adaptation of Dread, a short story by Clive Barker. It was a go picture. It was game made. What's insane about this is that both Race with the Devil and Dread were slated to be produced by Fox, the same studio where Rothman was the chief executive. Knowing these facts, it now seems more than foolish that Drew would choose to publicly bash Rothman in writing on Ain't It Cool News. It was also stupid and perhaps borderline abusive of Drew to compare Rothman, who is Jewish, to Joseph Goebbels, chief propagandist for the Nazis. But Drew didn't stop there. And before I share this next excerpt, there's one thing I need to make clear. Tom Rothman's wife is an actress by the name of Jessica Harper, who starred in such movies as The Phantom of the Paradise and Suspiria. Oh, and by the way, Rothman, telling a ballroom full of people that you're a geek just because you fuck the star of Suspiria and Phantom of the Paradise every night? Oh, that's very classy. Very, very classy. According to Jeremy Smith, this was something Drew did often during his time at Ain't It Cool News. That's the thing, is that Drew is just, he's, he's a very principled guy uh, and, and holds fast to his principles. And if, you know, if he feels someone is uh, forcing him to, uh, you know, take a position that he doesn't agree with or that, that violates those principles, yeah, he'll, he gets hot. Um, I've seen it, that, that, that volcanic temper of his. And I bet that thing just spilled out of him, too. Drew McQueenie poked a lot of bears during his time as a contributor at Ain't It Cool News. And after being publicly outed as the writer who secretly worked for Ain't It Cool News under the pseudonym Moriarty, you could argue that the last thing this aspiring screenwriter needed to do was poke a bear as powerful as Tom Rothman. And since that Drew had bashed his work as a studio executive, compared him to the second most recognized member of the Nazi party, and quoted a crude remark that Rothman had made about his own wife during the Saturn Awards, the head of 20th Century Fox retaliated. Rothman banned Drew and the rest of Ain't It Cool News from attending any screenings or events related to 20th Century Fox. This is a ban that would reportedly last for five years. But according to Jeremy Smith, Tom Rothman's reprisals would also affect Drew's career as a screenwriter. That would have been their first, um, their first credited uh, feature, aside from Mortal Kombat 3 or whatever, but but yeah, and that and got killed because Drew wrote that piece. C. Robert Cargill adds that other studios and production companies were pressured to refuse to work with Drew McQueenie on any future projects as well. Drew had a lot of power and Drew had a very prominent position and had a target on him. And then he did a couple of things that like literally caused him to get blacklisted like literally had filmmakers calling other studios saying, we're not working with this person anymore and you shouldn't either. One could make a successful argument that Harry Knowles damaged his position as a journalist in order to curry favor and boost his position within the entertainment industry. Ironically enough, C. Robert Cargill says Drew did the opposite of this. There's a power dynamic there that Drew was playing two sides of and put himself into a position where... Um, you know, he was going to force to be, be forced to choose and he didn't want to choose. And so when he had, when that choice finally came to the fore, the industry chose for him. And so that's where he ended up kneecapping himself. Um, 
and uh, and it was rough to watch because I think Drew's a talented filmmaker. I think he's a talented screenwriter. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. During this time when Drew McQueenie was all but torpedoing his chances of working within the film industry through his writing at Ain't It Cool News, Harry Knowles was offline, trying to become a real player in Hollywood. Harry Knowles had received a few different offers to work on projects outside of his website. One of these opportunities was a TV series on Comedy Central. Harry Knowles, along with his website collaborators Drew McQueenie, Kevin Beagle, and Paul Alvarado Dykstra, began to work on a pilot in 2001. Full disclosure, one of my primary goals when I started this season of Download was to watch the pilot for this series. I completely failed in this regard. No one I've interviewed or contacted for the show has a copy of it, so everything I'm going to say about this episode comes purely from the people I interviewed who made it. Um, they had a combination of youthful, naivete, geeky expertise. There was also just a sense of, inc of incredible possibility. That's TV producer Scott Carter. Scott has produced hundreds of hours of television, including Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher, and Mars follow-up series Real Time on HBO. Scott Carter met Harry because the two of them had the same agent, and despite the fact that he had produced countless hours of television, including many pilots that were never picked up, Scott's memories of producing the Ain't It Cool pilot remain fairly keen. I remember visiting Austin, and there's this phenomena at Austin around dusk where there's this old either warehouse or abandoned, I don't know what, where at dusk, Thousands of bats fly out into the Austin sky every night at, at, at dusk. And I was thinking, we should have like an exterior shot of this place around dusk. So that when we do this animated interior, we're, we're implying that, that, that Harry is living in this place where the bats live during the day. Uh, but, I think, but I think we abandoned that. The development of the show included many abandoned concepts, due in large part because the program that Harry had envisioned creating was, according to Scott, just like his website during its early days, a hodgepodge of ideas. Parts of the series were going to combine live action with animation. This was so that there could be a Siskel Niebert style movie review segment, wherein Harry would argue about movies opposite Drew McWeenie, who would be portrayed by an animated version of the avatar he used on Ain't It Cool News. And then the centerpiece of every episode would be a round table style discussion featuring a panel of guest speakers. It, 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 yeah, and I was working with people who I was probably I was probably at least 10 years older than everybody else. Uh, I forget exactly how old they were or I was, but I, I was very much the senior person and very much also the person who had the expertise in the world of, of television, which they did not have. Paul Alvarado Dykstra worked as a producer on the pilot. He concedes that Scott Carter's expertise in regards to what would make a successful TV series was often ignored. Ultimately, it was just that Harry just would not listen to people smarter than him and was too stubborn for his own good. And, and it cost us. I think, I think we could have had a show that worked and that went uh, if he hadn't insisted on 
all his indulgences that he wanted that made the show too complicated, too expensive, uh, too difficult to schedule and program. Essentially, Ain't It Cool News was supposed to be a news program, but it would be next to impossible for the show to stay up to date with current events if your show included animated segments, which require a lot of time to produce and finish. It's also important to note that animation would make the show, for a news program, very, very expensive. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Comedy Central passed on the opportunity to take the Ain't It Cool News pilot to series. Harry Knowles' cable TV ambitions might have been a bust, but he didn't have too much time to feel sad or lick his wounds. There was actually another medium in Harry's sights that was far more important to him. Of course, I'm talking about movies. What's more, Harry Knowles landed a couple of major production deals with two different studios. When all of this went down, it made some people suspicious that this could be an attempt by studios to yet again buy off Harry Knowles. A similar thing actually happened to legendary film critic Pauline Kael, who was hired by actor and filmmaker Warren Beatty in 1979 to produce the film Love and Money with director James Toback. I share this comparison with Gerald Perry, a film critic and director of the documentary For the Love of Movies, the story of American film criticism. This was his response. That's, that's absolutely true. And she also you know, hung out with filmmakers and wrote sometimes too favorably about her friends like Sam Peckinpah. And, I mean, she's a, you know, on a whole different level as a writer and thinker than Harry Knowles, obviously. That's a terrible relationship anywhere to be courted as a critic by Hollywood and supposed to be an independent person, but it certainly makes more sense with Kale than with Harry Knowles. The first of Harry Knowles' two production deals was with the now largely defunct Revolution Studios, the company that produced the first Hellboy film with Guillermo del Toro. According to an article in Variety, when Revolution approached the webmaster with the opportunity to produce the film, Harry Knowles responded by presenting a list of 50 as in five zero different movie pitches. This had to have been exhausting, but Revolution selected an original family horror comedy titled Ghost Town, which unfortunately for Harry would remain in development until Revolution all but shut down in 2007. What happened next was an example of great fortunes knocking not once, but twice. According to Harry Knowles, two weeks after his production deal with Revolution Studios was originally announced, he got a call from legendary film producer Jim Jacks. Jax is the mogul who is responsible for greenlighting such films as the Coen Brothers Raising Arizona, Richard Linklater's Days to Confused, as well as the Mummy movie starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Reportedly, Jim Jax had read Harry's book, Ain't It Cool? The book features appendices which concludes with a list of 10 unmade films that Harry would most like to see. It was the fifth movie on that list that Jim Jax sought to produce with Harry a big-screen adaptation of Edgar Rice Burroughs' pulp intergalactic sci-fi novel, John Carter of Mars. When I saw you, I believed that something new can come into this world. You are John Carter of Earth? Yes, ma'am. No, not the John Carter film that was produced by Disney and Pixar and released in 2012. The adaptation that Harry Knowles had signed on to create with Paramount would never be made. But it was in that road to nowhere that Harry Knowles managed to burn through a list of directors that would include Harry's friend and fellow Austin resident Robert Rodriguez, as well as Carrie Conran, 
who directed Sky Captain and The World of Tomorrow. We had about, I swear it felt like, Two and a half, three years where we were adapting the project with Carrie Conran from Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. And that would have been the best version of the film. We never had the best script, but Carrie had the right vision for the project. But it was the third director that Harry tapped who would get closest to bringing this potential adaptation of John Carter of Mars to the big screen. The director I'm referring to is John Favreau. We had mentioned in episode two of this program that among both filmmakers and actors... John Favreau was an early adopter of internet movie geek culture. He also starred in the pilot Harry Knowles made for Comedy Central as one of the panelists in the roundtable discussion. It could be argued that it was Favreau's close proximity with the early internet movie geek community that gave him the insights to become one of the most visible and profitable creators in contemporary film or TV. Favreau is, after all, the person that many Star Wars fans say relaunched that franchise to new prominence by giving audiences the character Grogu, aka Baby Yoda, in the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian. And yet, within the currents of causality, all of this nearly came undone when Favreau was very close to making this John Carter adaptation with Harry Knowles. Fortunately for John Favreau, there was one major snag. During the time he was prepping to make John Carter with Harry Knowles, the actor-slash-director landed a sure-thing job offer to make a film. This offer came from a brand new studio who wanted Favreau to adapt a somewhat obscure piece of intellectual property into a new movie. Of course, the studio that wanted to hire John Favreau was Marvel Films, and that low-hanging IP they wanted Favreau to develop was a film adaptation of their then C-tier superhero, Iron Man. Favreau told me that he felt that the executives at the studio wanted him on Iron Man instead of John Carter. And I told Favreau, well, go make Iron Man, because after you make Iron Man, you'll be able to make anything you want to make, and we can get John Carter done. You don't need me to tell you that Iron Man went on to become a massive hit. Alone, the film would gross $585 million worldwide and transform its lead actor Robert Downey Jr., who Favreau fought to put in the movie, into one of the biggest stars working today. Is it better to be feared or respected? And I say, is it too much to ask for both? More importantly, Iron Man went on to launch the Marvel Cinematic Universe that today has grossed more than $25 billion worldwide. Meanwhile, when the movie rights to John Carter of Mars lapsed at Paramount, they were immediately snatched up by Disney and Pixar, where their adaptation grossed $73 million domestically from a reported $306 million budget. So yeah, Favreau choosing to make Iron Man with Marvel over John Carter of Mars with Harry Knowles definitely worked out for the best. For everyone but Harry Knowles, that is. But Harry Knowles would help get at least one film into theaters both across the country and around the world. That film would be a low-budget horror movie written and directed by Eli Roth. Just as he had done for many low-budget and indie horror films, Harry Knowles had helped Eli Roth's indie feature debut Cabin Fever find an audience. And more importantly, secure national distribution. And according to Drew McQueenie, Harry Knowles and Eli Roth had become close friends, due in part to a shared sense of humor that was peculiar to say the least. He and Eli Roth used to see each other and every time they would see each other, they would do a high five thing that they did and say how many years it was until the Olsen twins were 18. According to Harry Knowles, 
He and Eli Roth would frequently explore obsessions like this during marathon phone calls the two of them had on multiple occasions. These conversations often ran well into the wee hours of the night. In one of these marathon phone sessions, Harry and Eli Roth began to talk about a lot of the darkest, most sinister things they had discovered on the internet. Like a poacher from Texas who, for an unknown fee, had allegedly set up an interactive webcam that would allow visitors to remotely control the gun he had pointed at large animals. Harry adds that he then shared another website with Eli Roth, which gave people the ability to kill more than just animals. I told him about the site I found that was about being able to pay to kill people. I want to be clear about one thing. I have no desire to dive into the dark underbelly of the internet to see if any of the websites Harry mentioned are real. And there's a good chance Harry could have made this whole story up. But according to both Harry Knowles and Eli Roth, Harry's revelation became the underlying basis for the 2005 film Hostel, a gory, splattery, low-budget film produced in Eastern Europe. Hostel takes a trio of American dude bro tourists, the horny, party guy sex hounds you would typically see in early 2000s sex comedies like American Pie or Road Trip, and then throws them into an underground dungeon where the uber wealthy pay to torture and murder them for profit. No! No, please don't! Hostel went on to gross, no pun intended, $82 million off of a $5 million budget. Harry Knowles did not produce this film, but he did receive a special thanks credit for it. What happened next is a slice of irony that one could typically only expect from a movie. When Eli Roth tried to capitalize on the popularity of the first Hostel film by immediately making a sequel, 2007's Hostel Part 2, a near-pristine work print of the film had leaked onto the internet. And after the movie hit the internet, it was reviewed by many internet movie geeks, while also being downloaded millions of times over by everyone else. This happened weeks before the movie's theatrical release. Eli Roth tried to hit back at the leak with an open letter. Piracy will be the death of the film industry, as it killed the music industry. And while it makes a smaller dent in huge movies like Spider-Man 3, it really hurts films like mine, which have far less of an advertising and production budget. Not only that, critics have actually been reviewing the film based off the pirated copy, which is inexcusable. Some of these critics I have actually known for a few years, and while I wouldn't dignify them by mentioning them by name, I know who they are, as do the studios and the other filmmakers, and they will no longer have any access to any of my films. Of course, the reason this turn of events was ironic is because Harry Knowles helped conceive the core idea that was the very concept of this budding movie franchise. It would in fact be the only major film series released in the 2000s that gave Harry Knowles an official credit. And yet this franchise, that was partially conceived by Harry Knowles, was ultimately taken down in part by movie critics who were acting like Harry Knowles. When Harry's friend Eli Roth decried the online movie critics who reviewed a work print of the second film, the truth was that Harry himself did the same thing to lots of movies. This included films like Sony's Starship Troopers, Disney's Tarzan, Pixar's A Bug's Life, and most infamously, Star Wars Episode II. Two people, Shay O'Brien Foley and former Ain't It Cool News contributor codenamed Joe Hollenbeck, were even arrested and convicted of real crimes for what was perceived to be at least a tangential connection to Harry Knowles' access of these illegal work prints. With a production budget of $10 million, Hostel Part 2 went on to gross $35 million worldwide, 
which doesn't seem like a bad deal. The problem is that the first Hostile film made more in its opening weekend here in the United States than the sequel did overall. Eli Roth, whose career as a director began with Cabin Fever, a quirky, low-budget horror comedy he basically shot in my backyard here in North Carolina, would be severely hobbled by this incident. His next feature-length film, The Green Inferno, would not get a national release until 2015, nearly a decade after Hostile Part II flopped. Eli Roth would claim that Hostile Part II was the most pirated movie of all time. That may or may not have been true in 2007 when the movie came out, but that was certainly not the case two years later. That's when a DVD quality video work print of the Hugh Jackman film X-Men Origins Wolverine leaked online about a month before the film's US release date on May 1st, 2009. During this time, Jeremy Smith had departed from Collider to again work with Ain't It Cool News. He says that when he first heard about the unauthorized leak of this film, he was skeptical. I looked at it and like immediately I was like, oh yeah, no, this is the movie. This was actually pretty finished though, if I recall correctly. The effects were finished, it like had end credits and everything. With everyone being able to download a pristine copy of X-Men Origins Wolverine, there were scores of wannabe and aspiring critics who were ready to share their takes on the film with various movie news websites. In a world that was suddenly full of traditional and online news outlets that were behaving like Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, there was one place where early reviews of this leaked work print of X-Men Origins Wolverine were not welcome. That place was, well, Ain't It Cool News. On April 1st, 2009, Jeremy Smith released an editorial on the matter simply titled, We Don't Want Your Wolverine Reviews! Triple exclamation point. I asked Jeremy Smith point blank what the thought process was behind refusing these reviews of the leaked film. Because I have so many friends who are artists. Uh, you know, it, it's just, I, I was very sympathetic to their cause and them getting paid and piracy in any form hurt them, uh, hurt the artist. Um, and that to me was, uh, uh, it was most important to stick up for them. I mean, how do you feel like this gels with Ain't It Cool News Legacy as a place where people did review pirated material? Like Harry accessed a lot of like pirated content. Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of times where they ran reviews of things they weren't really supposed to have in hand. Yeah, and I've got a, you know, uh, there are definitely some ambiguities that I have to make peace with. I appreciate Jeremy's willingness to question the hypocrisy or at the very least moral ambiguity Ain't It Cool News faced in terms of refusing to run reviews of unfinished movies they were not authorized to watch. But I should also add that before he made this statement, Jeremy Smith shared another reason Ain't It Cool News made this stance. He says it was an attempt to repair the damage that Drew McWeeny created years earlier between the website and Fox. I also thought it would get us in good with Fox, a studio where we'd had some difficulty uh, getting invited to screenings. Uh, and I think some of that was residual from Drew because Drew had written his whole screed against uh, Rothman years before that. Yeah, I just, I was like, well, you know, we'll, we'll put our foot down. I got a really nice email from one of the Fox publicists, you know, saying, well, thank you very much. And, you know, you know, we re really appreciate this. Hugh appreciates this. That was like the thing where it was like, Hugh Jackman appreciates this. And I was like, oh, well, that's very nice. Despite the leaks and overwhelmingly mixed to negative reviews, 
X-Men Origins Wolverine would go on to gross $373 million worldwide off of a $150 million budget. And whether or not piracy hurt the financial success of the movie, 20th Century Fox would continue making X-Men films as well as two more solo Wolverine films. As for Ain't It Cool News, whatever double standards this about-face created, both acknowledged and otherwise, their decision not to run reviews of the leaked copy of X-Men Origins Wolverine was the end of an era, one of two that would take place for the website during the mid to late 2000s. Fans of the site would accuse Ain't It Cool News of being hypocrites and sellouts. But there was one thing that was absolutely true. Ain't It Cool News days of being a wild and sometimes even dangerous crew of online renegades and disruptors within the film industry were over. Their format had been copied by numerous websites. But more important than that, according to Jeremy Smith, their spirit had been tamed by the studios that once feared them. We're all playing by the same rules. You know, we're legitimate journalists now. So that was one way of everyone wants access. When you take away access, you know, what do you have? Was it more important to Anacool to have access or more important to be what Anacool used to be? The other end of an era for Anacool News would be something that happened in 2008. The departure of Drew McQueenie, a.k.a. Moriarty. The writer, I would argue, is most responsible for the rise of Anacool News. And I just wanted to be done with it. I was like, fine, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to burn you down in public, but I'm done. The reasons Drew McQueenie left Ain't It Cool News have always been a mystery to me and many old school fans of the site. With Drew's departure, plus the fact that Harry Knowles was largely absent from the day-to-day -day operations, the website would be sustained by the one and only technical innovation that Ain't It Cool News helped to popularize within internet culture. This innovation would ultimately spawn a digital community of thousands of movie fans and give them a collective voice that could be heard within the power circles of Hollywood. People started pushing each other, insulting each other, talking smack about the writer of the article, talking smack about somebody who liked the movie, you know, talking shit all together, and then calling each other terrible, horrible names. There were times when this community could provide the site with content that could be both funny and entertaining. But the good was almost always erased by what can only be described as a wellspring of hateful, racist, homophobic, and misogynistic white male nerd rage. Uh, we had some of the worst trolls on the internet say awful things. You know, I occasionally will have people pull me aside and go, you don't know what it's like to be a film critic these days where you can be threatened with rape or murder. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I do. And no, I'm not referring to Twitter or Reddit or even 4chan. I'm referring to their predecessor, Talkbacks, the comment section that was invented specifically for Ain't It Cool News. It was just kind of assumed that... You know, the internet is a shit place. The talkbacks are a shit place. It's just kind of the way it is. And we all just kind of do our best to maneuver within it. Talkback is something I've waited to explore in this show because it deserves a full conversation. And it's a conversation we will be having during the second half of our two-part story, The Anti-Social Network, here on Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. Thinking of you. Part 6 of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, titled The Anti-Social Network Part 1, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia, production assistance by Reese Allen, and online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles, 
Sarah Griffin as Catherine Shord, Yemanja Stanley as Bonnie Kressler, Jake Stewart as the voice of Drew's anger, and AJ Schrader as Eli Roth. Music credits include original theme music and other songs by Chester Enders Biguasta. Additional songs were also created by Format X, Howard Harper Barnes, Exopulse, White Bones, Trailer Works, Ethan Sloan, and Telmo Telmo. The song you are listening to right now is At the Movies on Quaaludes by The Flaming Lips from their fantastic new album, American Head. We're going to be taking a short break after this episode in order to research new parts of the story that we recently discovered. But stay tuned for a few bonus episodes that we will drop in the meantime. Also, if you're looking for a great narrative podcast series to listen to during our downtime, I could not recommend Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This Enough. People have speculated that Karina might very well be the person who wrote for Ain't It Cool News under the pseudonym Alexandra Dupont. That's probably not true, but regardless, Karina is a master of the documentary podcast series, and her new season starts on April 5th, so check it out like I will. Download the Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W, pod as in podcast.com. There you can read show notes, ask a question, and even leave a message that could be played on the air. We will be back with a brand new narrative episode on April 28th. So join us then as we dial up, log on, and download. Files done. Goodbye.